Okay, so um, tonight is connection to older believers, and this is kind of where we kind of like say we've seen you. So you have a relationship with Scott, um, and it's it's kind of weird. I don't know, is Scott? Where is Scott? He's back there. He's okay. left the building. So, so it's kind of weird because we don't want this to be like a hey, Aaron, tell us how good Scott is and tell us how wise and all of that. We already know. Okay, we already know how awesome Scott is, but specifically, what we'd like to know is kind of like. A, um, what it looks like to be in a, in a mentorship um, and kind of like how you've um, put into that and how it started. So um, what I'd like to start for my first question um, is how did your relationship slash mentorship um, start with Scott and how did it move into your mentorship? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, I started coming to the table whenever I was a freshman. My sister wasn't already involved and so she was like, hey, you should try out other places, but the table is awesome, and then I never tried out any other places, but um, <laughs> I'm sure they're awesome. But, uh, so I just started coming, um, and I got involved with the table, um, and I think, I'm trying to remember, how, like, when Scott and I first met. I think maybe Abby and I went over to his house for dinner, um, but I think our relationship um, first started to develop, like, one, just through, like, spending time um, together, like, at the table and, like, Sunday school, like, we saw each other a lot, um, and then kind of the back half of my freshman year, um, <clears throat> I, like, walked through some uh, difficult things, and I just felt like I needed a process with somebody, um, and I kind of built a relationship uh, with Scott at that point, and so I was like, I should talk to him, and so um, that's kind of how um, we started uh, to get to know each other, and then yeah. it kind of moved from just like a, hey, I, I see you at the table, to mm-hmm. hey, I want to, I want your input on this. Yeah, yeah. So like, uh, you, you were connected to the table, and then you already had a relationship with Scott, and you kind of just, you started going to him for his stuff, and then kind of, I don't built up into a a mentorship from there. Yeah. It wasn't like I came to the table and then, like, saw him preach and then was like, hey, will you be my mentor? Um, will you date me? Yeah. Will you, <laughs> please. Um, but, yeah. So it was pretty organic. And then he actually kind of approached me about, like, okay. wanting to... He asked if, like, we wanted to start meeting. So Yeah. Awesome. So I remember when I was... Uh, when I first came and I heard, like, I heard people talk about, like... Uh, Who's your mentor? Do you have a, a mentorship or whatever? And I had I had no idea what that looks like. Um, so maybe if there's anyone like like me when I first came, um, could you describe like what does it look like to be a mentee? Is, it, is that the, the other the other person in a mentor relationship and like what the mechanics of that looks like? Yeah. So I think it can look differently, um, but kind of in the context of Scott and I's relationship. Um, so this year we started meeting, um, with Caleb and Connor. Um, we meet once a week and that's just kind of like open season, like just whatever is going on in your life. Like, let's talk about it. Do you have questions about theology, like relationships, whatever? Um, let's talk about it. And so that is something that happens like on a week to week basis. And Scott's just like, Hey, I'm available. And like, um, yeah, this can look like however you want it to look like. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I would say, um, I think it's important to remember that your mentors don't have limitless time and energy. And so, um, 
I don't think that mentorship looks like me running every like decision or like event by Scott and um, saying like, oh my gosh, like this little thing happened or like, yeah. what do you think I should do? Should I go home this weekend or I don't know, <laughs> th- things like that. Um, <clears throat> but so I think the week to week are like good if I kind of just like retain questions mm-hmm. or, or things that I want his um, input on. And then whenever like there are major things that mm-hmm. I feel like I just want to, I need more time to process, which that doesn't come around like super often, like yeah. once or twice a semester, then I would probably like ask if we could meet, you know, just yeah. him and I and say like, Hey, what are your thoughts? Um, but yeah, like being cognizant of his time mm-hmm. and energy. Yeah, so you, you, you like, you're saying like you intentionally come like with stuff. If Scott's this fountainhead of wisdom that we all know that he is, you, you, you come and you try and you have processing things going on in your life and trying to. Yeah, see what yeah, I've always got questions. Yeah. So sometimes it's more just like, okay, I'm like going to rein myself in a little bit. But yeah, so like I think of questions and then I'll bring them to him. Okay. Yeah, so. Um, in in this process, how have you how have you benefited slash how has God shaped you through like your relationship with Scott and, and you bringing your problems and questions to Scott? Yeah, um, I would say, and I think Scott, to his credit, does a really great job of this. But Scott is not the source of truth, and so mm-hmm. he may have great advice and like. Uh, great input, but ultimately, like, the Bible and God is who I'm accountable for. And so I'm not just going and adopting Scott's opinions or thoughts on things, although a lot of times they, they are great. But I think um, a lot of times I come out of talking to him, um, and I just feel uh, challenged, or I'm like, it, it's usually like, okay, I want to think about this further, like, yeah. And now I, like, maybe have, like, some scripture. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know this existed. And so I take that and I, like, work through it personally with the Lord. And so it's not, I think it would be really dangerous for me to base my faith on, like, what Scott, you know. My my faith is not built on Scott. And so he has lots of great things to say. Mm -hmm. um, But ultimately he kind of points me back to scripture and and challenges me to work through things, like, with God. Mm -hmm. So like uh, yeah, to Scott's word, you don't take Scott's word as gospel. So it's kind of like process it through and work it through with God. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So the, I mean, the idea of this is like seriously, we're not just want to say, hey, look at look at how awesome Scott is, or look what kind of relationship Aaron has, um, but just kind of give you a picture as to what it looks like to to be connected to older believers. And I, I really like how you were saying that it comes from being deeply connected with. The church body, and then those those relationships are just built, and they just and they just go from there. So, mm-hmm. awesome! Thank you, Aaron. Okay, I am gonna pray, and then we will get started for the night. Bow your heads. Lord God, God, we thank you so much. Uh, God, we thank you so much for what you're doing here. Um, God, we thank you so much for the church as a whole um, and for our little branch 
called the table and, and the great teaching that, that, that's just focused on you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've given us. We don't deserve it. And this is a, this is a grace, a gift from you, Lord. Um, I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you'd be with us tonight. Um, whatever is said, whatever is taught, whatever, you, whatever section of Scripture you have for us, that, that you would help us hear it. Um, Lord, that you would open our hearts and help us see the, the value of what it is to listen to your words. And God, I ask that you would help us go and, and put them to practice. We love you, Lord. We ask that you are glorified in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you may have noticed that it is very, very hot in here. We are sorry about that. We have just now realized that our air conditioning is not functioning as it should. So if we can just take a quick minute, if you're by a window, to open that up so that we can get some airflow in here, then that would be awesome. Okay. I think we just about got it. Hopefully that will cool it down in here a little bit um, as the sun starts going down. should get a little bit better, so sorry about that, guys. Um, Aaron, thank you for sharing. Just a couple of things. If, if, if you're kind of listening, which, by the way, Alec wanted me to make sure that I told you that this is one of the five things and, and, not, and not the pillar, so I really had to make sure and point that out for him promised him that I would do that. Um, but if you're sitting there listening to that and you're kind of wondering, how do I go about getting that connection to older believers? I just want to encourage you guys of a couple of things. And the first one is this, um, and Aaron, you, you kind of touched on this, but being involved in the local church body. So in order to kind of organically find a connection with older believers, you have to be around them in the first place. And so that's going to look like showing up at stuff that is not just geared towards college students. Um, a great example of that is at Sunnybrook, we had this Good Friday service, less of a service, kind of, there was, there was a few things, but it was more of a potluck, more of, hey, everybody brings something, we'll sing a few songs and we'll reflect, but like, let's just spend time together. And I was overjoyed to see a bunch of you guys there. That was so cool. It is stuff like that that is not just geared specifically towards you um, that you need to be showing up at so that you can have this multi-generational um, connection. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is make sure that you're serving regularly. If you are serving regularly, you can put yourself in a position to get to know other older believers and to see them. And so if, for instance, you are leading a small group, let's say, um, of junior high guys on Wednesday nights, and let's say that Drew Moss is your co-leader, whoever it may be, you're able to kind of see that person, develop a relationship, and then as Aaron said, intentionally think through some questions that you might like their input on. And so sometimes mentorship really does look like, hey, we're going to sit down once a week, we're going to walk through this book about spiritual disciplines, or we're going to be reading this and then we're going to talk about it. Um, and that can be great and that can be wonderful for certain seasons. But a lot of times it looks like developing these relationships where when I really do have a big question or, or something big that I'm trying to process, as Aaron kind of said, that spurred this on, I can go to that person and I can connect with them. Um, so I just want to encourage you guys that this can look like a lot of different things. How do I go about that? 
I seek it out intentionally um, and not just necessarily randomly going up to someone and saying, hey, will you be my mentor? Although that can happen. Um, but, but if that's something that you're wanting to have, pray through, like, where is that maybe organically already happening in my life? Am I doing these things of being plugged in and showing up and being involved? And am I serving? And are there any relationships that God is kind of naturally giving me that could continue to develop and could continue to go forward? So also, just so you guys know, I mean, we, we talk a lot about our five things. We try to really um, look at the text as we're going to be walking through um, over the year and pick nights where it fits in really well with what we're going to be studying um, for some of these great reminders. And so kind of you, you can be listening for this as you hear tonight Paul's description of how he feels towards the Corinthians and kind of the way that he sees himself as their spiritual father or their spiritual parent. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 12 tonight in the last half of that. Um, I'll give you a minute to turn there. But as you're doing that, I, I kind of I want you to take a minute and think through Um, a time in your own life when maybe your expectations were not met. Maybe you thought that you should have gotten paid a whole lot more than you did at your summer job last summer. Maybe you started dating somebody that you thought was going to be really awesome and they turned out to be a ridiculous loser. Maybe it was your whole college experience has not met up to your expectations or whatever the case may be. Think of something when you have been shocked by kind of what you had anticipated and what you thought and then what actually was. Um, And for me, one of the most shocking of those kind of, this really is not living up to what I thought it ought to live up to, was the summer of 2008. Um, So Ryan and I got married. Um, He was finishing up architecture school and he, um, he landed this really great internship in New Haven, Connecticut that was in an awesome location. It was by the beach. It was close to New York. Um, they were going to do what they kind of do to interns, which was pay him really well, but because you're an intern, I'm going to get 90-hour weeks out of you. Um, so we knew that they were kind of going to use and abuse him like that financially. We were going to be fine. And so we had this conversation about maybe I could take the summer not necessarily off, but like maybe I could take like a little bit of an easier summer. We're going to be right by the beach. We're going to be in this coolest ever place. Um, So I talked to my sister actually and said, you know, Ryan's going to be working so much. We have this place. We have these bedrooms. You should just come with me. Let's go. We'll hang out. Um, And she agreed to it. I'm super close with my sister. So everything in my mind was set. It was going to be awesome and so exciting. Like, yes, I was going to miss him. He's going to be working a lot, but I'm going to live it up, having the time of my life, enjoying the summer. Um, And I didn't want to fully be, you know, like a bum or anything. I did want to, like, help us pay some bills and stuff. So I thought, okay, what can I do there that was going to be easy and fun and, you know, is going to fit in with this image that I have of how my summer is going to go? So I thought about it, and I decided babysitting. That's easy, babysitting. I grew up around kids. I know kids. I like kids. That should be awesome. In fact, I would really enjoy that. I thought most of the time that would be true. Um, So I, at this time, Craigslist is like really new, right? But I put an ad out there on Craigslist of like, here's who I am. You know, I'm kind of looking to pick up some babysitting hours this summer or whatever. And immediately a family contacts me. So I'm thinking, this is going to be awesome. Um, So I go for an interview 
Um, and I, I, I later realized there were just so many things that played in to what took place. But I interviewed with the dad, who seemed fabulous, and he told me, and I think he really believed this in his defense, he ended up being the only person in the family that I liked by the time it was all said and done. But he told me, um, this is basically like a cush job. So we're gonna pay you really well, but like our kids are gonna be in camps all summer so you can drive them to and from. That would be great. Like we might need your help a little bit with like some light laundry. My wife might want that. Um, you know, sometimes we might need you to make dinner. Um, and you know, but you should have a lot of time. In fact, like I think you'll just be able to hang out and read. Um, we have this like community club, like there's this pool. This, this should be, you know, like it should be really enjoyable. Um, so I find out that the reason that the wife is not there, and this should have been my red flag number one, the former nanny had quit without notice and had just called them and said she would never ever again be coming back. And so the wife could not be there, who really kind of in this particular home ran everything. And so it was the sweet husband that was explaining all this and how easy my summer was going to be. And so I thought, yeah, like this sounds great. And since they did not have a nanny, Things needed to move fast. School's getting out, and so they needed me to start, like, right away. And so I'm thinking, okay, like, this is going to be fine. Their house was incredible. Um, it was kind of a prominent family. The dad was a heart surgeon, and then the mom was a cancer doctor and specialist at Yale who was, like, practicing all this innovative stuff. And um, they had this incredible house, and it backed up to this enormous woods out back and so it was in this gorgeous location and the dad seemed very nice so I was like all right yes yeah, sure I you know I'm in I will totally do this it's going to be more hours than I wanted but you're going to pay me really well and this all sounds great so I decided to start um, and you all I was grossly unprepared for what was awaiting me the very first day when I got there um, I realized that the mother didn't expect me to help with a little bit of laundry. She wanted me to do every last bit of this family of five. I had to take care of all the laundry. I had to take care of the cleaning. I was responsible for making dinner every single night. When the kids were at their camps, which they did have, I was shuttling them, but then I was coming right back to get these enormous to-do lists about this long that she would leave for me filled with all kinds of things such as like cleaning out and rearranging their garage. A snake got in when that happened and I was all by myself. That's a story for another day. But there were so many things that, that were happening, um, not to mention like this family's re relationship with pet life, which I know that sounds odd. So the first day I get there to really babysit, I meet their enormous 90 pound dog. And I don't remember the term for this, but I guess there is this condition that dogs can have where they get I don't know, something about submission. Basically, every time she saw me, she would get really excited. She would come right by my feet, and she would pee. And so that was like a, a constant thing that was happening. Um, when I arrived like that morning, the dad's like about to leave for work, and he tells me, don't panic if you see the dead mouse that's in the freezer. It died yesterday, and we don't know if the kids need closure or not, so we just kind of stuck it in the freezer in case we need to do a funeral. Uh, so like, don't be panicked if you see it. It's all going to be fine. And I was thinking, like, this, okay, is he like punking me? No, he was serious. That very day, the little girl, there were, there were twin 10-year-olds, and then there was an 8-year-old. Um, the little girl, the 10-year-old, she was chasing her gerbil and accidentally ripped its ear off, and it did die. That happened. This is all first day, you guys. This is all first day. So there were so many things that I could tell you about how 
horribly behaved these children were. They had grown up with a nanny, which for some families might be fine. It had ruined these children. And the only form of discipline that I was allowed to do was say, well, you might want to go sit up in your room and think about that for just a minute. And it was so bad that at the end of the summer, a tutor who did not know me from Adam, she came to help the kids get ready for it before like school is going to start. And so she came and she was kind of helping them make sure that they were ready to go. And um, she had no idea how much I hated my job. But she pulled me aside. She had had the little girl in class the year before. She pulled me aside in the kitchen. God bless her forever. And she said, please don't let this job keep you from wanting to have children. Not all children are like this. I need you to know. And I just looked at her and said, thank you. But I knew I was in trouble that very first day. All these things had happened, and the little girl is kind of the tipping point. She is wanting to go out in the forest, their forest they had out back, in her silk pajamas. And we are in a serious argument that, no, you cannot. These are brand-new silk pajamas. You cannot go outside into the forest in the brand-new silk pajamas. And she looked at me, and, guys, this just sums up the whole entire summer. She said, well, you don't make the rules at this house. And yes, truly, I, as I found, I did not. I spent that whole summer, the 20-minute commute that was supposed to be like my nice summer off, that whole 20-minute commute, I was praying the whole way, and I would sing the song from my childhood. I've got joy down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart. Spell J-O-Y down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart, the whole way to try to get through. And I can tell you that I had a stinking, miserable summer. But you know what? I grew a lot. So I am grateful for that. But the reason I tell you, kind of walking you through all of that scenario, is I want to talk a little bit about expectations and how sometimes the things that we have in mind that we are so sure about um, may not actually be our reality. And that is actually where the Corinthians find themselves as Paul is writing this letter to them. Um, And actually, a lot of what we've been dealing with and what has been going on, but just to kind of catch us up to speed and jog your memory, a lot of what he's been dealing with in this letter is um, gratefulness that the Corinthians have repented the way that they have, but he is still tying up a lot of loose ends. Um, And and a huge part of that has been these so-called super apostles, okay, which just to describe them, were these men who were going around Um, And they were basically saying, they were putting these expectations into the Corinthians' minds and saying, this is what an apostle looks like, and calling themselves the super apostles, which, by the way, who gives themselves a nickname? Can I just say, you know that person is, it's just, it's, it's, it's never good. That never goes well. Um, But essentially they were saying that a super apostle needed to, or a false apostle, you'll hear both of those things and, and your text might say, different things, but um, this person needs to sound really, really good, basically to have a silver tongue. Um, This person needs to look good. They need to have kind of this air of authority about them, um, and so that they kind of command a presence when they enter a room. That needs to be there. Um, and, And really, in essence, these were con men. They were taking money from the Corinthians, um, and I mean, logically speaking, if you're wanting to get someone's money, if you're wanting them to pay you and you don't care what kind of lies you're going to be telling them, you are going to try to get as much money as you can. So they're going to tell the Corinthians things that their itching ears wanted to hear. 
and the Corinthians are going to continue to support these super apostles, these false apostles. Um, and, and there was kind of almost this status thing of, yes, I'm supporting them and, and they're famous, so to speak, or all of this is going on. And so a lot of this has been um, Paul kind of clearing up his ministry and saying, um, you know, this has been a gospel-driven ministry from the start. And he basically has spent the last couple of chapters just dismantling all of these expectations that you've had about super apostles and what that's supposed to look like. They've all been absolutely wrong. If I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in my weakness because that is, that is truly the mark of God doing things through me, not me myself. And you're going to see in the text tonight that he is wanting to get as far away, as much distance um, between himself and these false apostles as he possibly can to say, no, I'm nothing like them. Actually, everything that they are strutting around the, the kingdom of God, like they're some kind of gift to the Corinthians, all of these things that are going on um, is the exact opposite of what you want. And actually what he's telling the Corinthians and what we've been looking at um, would not have been things that sound good to their ears. And I can't remember if it was Scott or Drew who mentioned, but we hear kind of Paul's list of, you know, all that he's been through in this suffering. And we today, with our, you know, modern ears, think, you know, yeah, that's awesome. Paul did all that for the gospel. But that is not how the Corinthians would have been hearing it. They would have been hearing it much like I realized what was happening with my summer job. Right? This is not the things that I was expecting, and I maybe didn't even know that I was signing up for that. Um, but he is trying to call them back to holiness, and he is trying to kind of set the stage for this third visit where he's going to come to them again. Um, and he wants to do, you'll see, but he wants to do everything he possibly can to avoid another painful visit to them. And so he is going to try to deal with as much as he can because, in essence, he wants the Corinthians to decide these things for themselves. He wants them to hear truth, and then he wants them to act on that truth. He doesn't want to have to come with full force and authority um, and, and come with church discipline to set things right. He will do that if he has to, but he wants to avoid it. And like a father, he loves them like they are his children, and so he's going to appeal to a lot of different things. He's going to be patient with them. He's going to speak truth to them, but he's also going to call them out. Um, so, all of that being said, let's kind of jump in 2 Corinthians 11, and we're going to go 11 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> so, Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. And so right away we see that Paul is boasting because he had to for the Corinthians' sake because they are still unable to distinguish fully Paul versus these super apostles. And so he doesn't want to go about boasting um, about anything about his credentials. He wants them to commend him. But they, in essence, like you have forced my hand. At this point, I have to kind of give you this list of um, credentials, so to speak, to try to help you understand what is really going on here. Um, in, in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul kind of starts this, this speech with um, the phrase, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. And then all throughout chapter 11 and up until our text tonight, you see multiple times as he is 
kind of describing all that, like his gospel-centered ministry, multiple times he says, like, I'm talking like a fool, or I'm talking like a madman, or this is crazy. And you can hear how much, basically how ridiculous he thinks this is, that he has to stand there and commend himself to them. Um, that, that, is not, that is not where his focus wants to be or what he wants to be doing. Um, and after he gets done with all of this boasting, um, he says in verse 11 that I have been a fool, and actually that's literally translated, I have become foolish. So he's kind of wrapping up that bit of speech and that bit of text. Um, and then I love the way that he kind of wraps up that verse 11. He, he ends, I have become foolish. I was not inferior to them, even though I am nothing. That again, it is, he's just got done saying like all of these things um, because of God's power in me, even though I am nothing, he still recognizes that it is God who's at work through him. And again, that's going to be in stark contrast to these super apostles who are incredibly arrogant and want all of the credit that they could possibly get. Um, Verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Um, Notice that he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, not I performed these signs. So again, he's being really, really careful about how he kind of lays out his language, um, that this is the doing of God. And um, he doesn't get really specific on what these signs and wonders were. Obviously, the Corinthians would have known, you know, they were there. So whatever it is that he's referring to. Um, But the biggest mark of true apostleship being the Holy Spirit's power, the Holy Spirit's power to convert, um, the Holy Spirit's power and weakness, that that is the mark of true and real apostleship. And he says in verse 13, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Paul is getting sarcastic, which I absolutely love. So please forgive me, he says. Um, He uses the language, I myself did not burden you, unlike his opponents, these false apostles who are going to take the Corinthians for everything that they can get. And what he's talking about here is actually money. So he's kind of saying, the only thing that I have done um, wrong, and he says this sarcastically, is that when I was with you, I supported myself. And I didn't ask for your money, um, unlike these other people. Verse 14, he says, Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So again, he's making it really, really clear that when he comes on this third visit, he's still not going to take their money. Um, And just to clarify that a little bit, he is coming to take a collection. You guys remember that, right? He has told them, we've talked about giving sacrificially and giving generously. And so it's not that Paul doesn't want the Corinthian church to give. It's not that at all. But it is that they are not mature enough at this point to distinguish between maybe supporting Paul and then supporting these other apostles. And so he's saying, like, I'm, I'm, I am not going to allow that. Um, you do not need to be um, supporting me right now. Right now, as a parent, as a good father, what needs to happen is I need to take care of you. You are not in a position to be taking care of me. Um, verse 15 
I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So he has served at at great cost. He's just got done, if you'll remember. And keep in mind, guys, like this is a whole letter. And I know that we all know that, but sometimes we forget it. So the Corinthians aren't reading this by chapter and verse. And Paul's not writing it by chapter and verse. And so he just gets done telling them like all of these crazy things that he's endured, all of these things that have, that have happened. Um, and he's telling them that he will gladly spend and be spent for their souls. Um, and he's saying this, this, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Um, again, that's a reference to these false apostles. So if I love you more, then they love you because I'm not going to burden you because I want what's best for you because I want you to know, love, and follow Jesus. Are you going to love me less than you love them? In other words, like, are you really going to sit there and not defend me or come to my defense that now I've had to do all this boasting to say, you know, this is the, the gospel-centered apostleship that I've had? That shouldn't be the case. That should not be happening. Verse 16 But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. So a couple of things that could be going on here. Um, Either someone is actually accusing Paul of basically pretending that he doesn't care about their money and not letting them pay him, but kind of coming under this disguise of a collection that he's going to be taking for the other churches that really when he gets there and he takes that collection, he's going to skim off the top and nobody's going to be any the wiser. So either somebody is actually saying that and has accused Paul of that, or Paul kind of knows this is what they're going to do and this is how they operate. And so he's kind of trying to get ahead of the game by defending himself in that area and saying, you know, that that's, that's crazy. Verse 17, did I take advantage of you? Through any of those whom I sent to you. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Um, So now Paul is asking for specific evidence. And and he phrases that first question in the Greek. Did I take advantage of you um, through any of those whom I sent to you? The way that he's phrasing it, it would have been kind of an assumed no, like with an exclamation point. Absolutely not. Um, And so now he's going to even appeal to his relationship with Titus because if you remember with what's been going on, um, Titus is the one who came and brought the tearful letter or the severe letter, okay? And the Corinthians responded well. They, They are repenting. Obviously, there's still a lot of work to be done, but rather than say, no, Paul, you're, you know, you're not our spiritual father and you're not our apostle, they are, they are wanting to do what is right. They are showing some leaning towards that. And so um, Titus then brings this good news to Paul. And 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to that. And so he knows they, they don't have any bad feelings towards Titus. Um, Titus has just brought him all this news. And so he's going to say this, it was in the same spirit, everything that we've done, everyone whom I've sent to you, it's been in the same gospel centered service and spirit. We have taken the same steps, um, with integrity. Okay. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? 
Who here thinks that Paul has been defending himself? Raise your hand. Right? That's tons of what he has been doing all throughout this book. Tons. But he's going to explain what he's talking about. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So what he's doing right there is making it very clear to them that no, I'm not up here defending myself to you. God is going to judge us. It is in the sight of God. Um, And not only that, but God's going to judge you, Corinthians. Like, he has the ultimate say. He decides. Um, I learned something really interesting that I did not know um, that is important and just kind of shows you. It's just a cool thing as we remember that, like, context is so important. So I guess in Jewish culture at this time, um, if there was a trial... Um, It was private party against private party. Um, And so let's say that I wanted to take Madison to court, and I wanted to say, like, Madison, you stole my shoes. Those are my shoes that you're wearing. You stole my shoes. I'm going to sue you. So let's say that we went to court, and let's say that the judge decided that actually Madison was innocent, and she did not, in fact, steal my shoes. That wouldn't necessarily be the end of the trial. In fact, what could then happen is Madison could come right back at me and say, yeah, not only did I not steal your shoes, but you have done this, this, and this. You've taken these things, or these are all your wrongs. I'm actually suing you. Um, And so what Paul is doing there is saying, God is the judge. I'm not defending myself to you, although I am innocent. Um, And he's just gotten done explaining all of that, but now he's going to flip the table a little bit. And now he's going to say, as I am getting ready to come for this third visit, these are some things that that need to be fixed. These are some things that need to happen. He's kind of going to turn it. So verse 20, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Guys, that is quite the list, isn't it? Question, what do you notice that those things have in common with each other? I'm going to leave you hanging on that one. Drew is going to answer that here in just a little bit, but kind of be thinking about that. Let's keep going. Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they have practiced. Um, And so we really see, like, in this last section, the heart of a father. That Paul is saying, like, we might not find each other as we wish, and I am very concerned that I'm going to be super mournful over these things. He's listed, like, all this sin that he's concerned that is still going on. And this really is a call to holiness. Um, Because as I kind of mentioned earlier, he does not want to come to them with a heavy hand. He wants them to want to do what is right. He wants them to respond to God um, and to have hearts that are repentant and want to have a godly sorrow and not a worldly sorrow. Um, But if need be, um, He will do what he has to do. But he's doing everything possible to build up the Corinthians and help them decide without force that they will do the right thing. So that is where we will leave off and take a break. And then Drew will get up in a few minutes and we'll get back to it.
Okay. We often use that term, like I'm afraid, in ways that really have nothing to do with fear. So my kid tonight doesn't like the kind of applesauce that I've given her, and she wants a different kind, and I say, I'm, I'm afraid that's the only applesauce we have. I'm not, I'm not really afraid. I don't care if that's the only <laughs> applesauce we have, right? But that's the way we talk a lot of times. And so when, when Paul uses this phrase, it, it, it doesn't really strike us, but I think he really does kind of mean it, like, I fear. Um, I'm afraid of the way things might go when I show up. I, I dread it having to be like our second one was. In fact, remember, you remember this is why Paul ended up sending what we call the tear-filled or the sorrowful letter, because he could not bring himself to return there again. It was so painful the way they had left off, and, and he's fearful of that. And he says to them in uh, verse 19, or verse 20, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. And then he defines what he means by that. What does Paul mean when he says, I'm afraid I'm going to find you not as I wish. And he gives these eight things and says, this is exactly what I mean. This is exactly what I don't want you to be when I show up. But I'm fearful that there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And he'll go on to say also that there's been a lack of repentance over sexual sin in their lives um, Rachel asked the question, those of you who are in table groups, we posed this question in your small group discussion, what do all of those things have in common? This list, this we call it a vice list, this vice list that Paul lays out, what is the common theme running through all of those? And the common theme is that every one of those things are relational. And every one of those are, are signs of relational discord, of disunity in the body of Christ. And the Corinthians, when we talk about them often, they're generally known for being kind of a flawed or messed up church. But usually, like the first thing we think of when we think of Corinthian sin is sexual immorality. We know that Corinth was a town kind of known for its sexual immorality and all its temple prostitutes. And it was a port town with a lot of sailors coming in and doing what sailors do in, in towns with lots of prostitution, all of those things. And so they get that kind of as their main reputation, this sexually immoral uh, city. And they were in this sexually immoral church sometimes. But if you read through the letters, I would argue that disunity is just as much, if not more, the Corinthians' issues than, than even sexual immorality. But that, when you read through, Paul brings this up multiple times and over and over again, that this may be even the more prevalent sin. In fact, if I were to say to you, the Corinthians were a fleshly church. They were a carnal church or a worldly church. Your mind immediately goes to, yeah, you got, you got dudes sleeping with their stepmom. That's a worldly, fleshly church. You got people who are engaged in temple prostitution. That's fleshly, worldly. But when Paul uses that exact word to describe the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. He says, because there is quarreling and fighting among you, that's how I know you are fleshly. He says, when I, when I look at you and there's division and there's strife and there's fighting, are you not acting in a carnal way? Are you not acting just like the world? This is how Paul gauges whether someone is spiritual or not. This is how he gauges whether someone, is, um, whether someone is mature or not. This is one of his primary keys is do they love their brothers and sisters in the church well? 
fact, Paul will say, and, and you may have heard us talk about it, a lot of times in his thank, when he writes letters, he opens with a thank you. And these two things come up repeatedly. Paul says, I thanked my God when I heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for the saints. Because it wasn't until Paul knew about both of those that he knew they were actually Christians. So you believe in Jesus, still not convinced. You love Christians, now I know you're a Christian. And I thank God for that. And that's not Paul's idea, that's, that's Jesus' idea. He gets that from Jesus. Jesus says in John 13, 34, By this will all people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. If you don't, that's, that, that ought to be the marker of us. The person who says, and this is a, a, a somewhat common idea today, is I, I love Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I love Jesus. It's just the church that I hate. I mean, it's full of hypocrites and all kinds of judgmental people. I love Jesus. It's just not the church. According to 1 John, that person is lying to you when they say those words. 1 John 4.20 says this, uh, a person cannot say, I love God and hate their brother. Anyone who says, I love God, but they hate their brother, that man is a liar. Because he who does not love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he does not see. Those two things are tied so closely together. Unfortunately, Jesus' statement, by this will all men know you are my disciples, you are Christians, that you love one another. That marker that Jesus laid out for his people has not always been the marker that the church is defined by. It's not real often. I don't know if I've ever heard it say, you know those churches, they always get along so well. Church Christians, the thing about Christians is they all just really, really love each other and they never argue or have any fighting about small, insignificant things. That's the great thing about churches and Christians, right? No, we hear the opposite all the time. The problem with the churches is so divisive problem with the church is, you know, it's split into all these denominations. The problem with the church is people can't get along and, and, and everyone's got some story about how their, their church split off of another church or another church split off of them. And I, I think oftentimes that that stereotype is unfair and not true. Don't believe um, that statement that the church is ununified or, or divisive as much as you might hear. Um, I, I really, for, time, for reasons I don't have time to get into, different denominations and different churches in a town don't bother me at all. I really don't think that there's anything to worry about in that, that that's somewhat a natural and okay and maybe even healthy thing. Like I said, for reasons I don't have time to get into, but at some point we can. Um, but even if I believe this is an unfair stereotype, it is a stereotype for a reason. Because, because the church truly is not marked for her unity and love a lot of times. While I was in college, I interned with a church that I really loved, and in the middle of my summer internship, it had actually been brewing for some time, but in the middle of my summer internship, um, one of the, actually the lead minister on staff who had been living a life that was not, you know, just crazy immoral, it was just a life that did not have a lot of integrity to it. And so another minister on staff saw this and called this out, called this person out, and when they didn't really repent much, talked to the elders about it, and it ignited in the church this um, huge division amongst the people. And, and people turned on one another, and people left the church, and, 
And at some point, I don't know today for sure if it was the minister and his wife or if it was just friends or supporters of the lead minister and his wife started actually spreading rumors about this minister's children. And, and so you had grown men and women in the church acting like junior hires, gossiping about 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds in the church. You had people who came together at a church-wide meeting and were literally screaming at each other in the middle of the auditorium, screaming at the elders. You had um, people who were threatening to sue the church over those things. In my own home church, um, one of the elders, my favorite elder, if I'm honest, and, and a man who was extremely godly and a man that I looked up to, a man who in Amy and I's wedding, we asked him to, to be a part of, to come up and lay hands and, and pray on us, uh, or pray, on, pray over us. Um, not that, that would have been weird. Um, but to, to pray over us. Um, this same man, um, about seven or eight years ago, maybe more, um, because of such... Um, bitter personality and philosophy disputes with another family could not even be in the worship service when one of those family members was up on stage or participating in it. Um, Could not be a part of the gathering to the extent that he ended up um, leaving the church and moving from the town uh, just because of, and like I said, a very godly man, but because of the anger in his heart towards this family was not able to stay a part of our church. And as the people of God, we cannot be marked by those kinds of things. If Jesus says that they'll know you're a Christian, they'll they'll know you belong to me by the way you love one another, stories like that should not be a part of our history, should not be a part of our story. And so what what I want to do tonight is just give us a, uh, a disunity inventory and, and just take this little list that Paul has put out here and ask this question, is this me? I want to walk and hopefully spend one to two minutes on each of these little things, not long, and then just ask the question, um, do I fit in that? And, and do I have the potential to bring the kind of divisiveness into a church, into a community that Paul lists here because I might be this person? So he lists these eight things in here, and the first one is this. Quarreling. The word means conflict over certain positions taken by certain parties. So he actually uses this when I said that Paul calls them fleshly and worldly. He said he used this exact word. Here's how I know you're fleshly because there's quarreling among you, and and what they're specifically fighting over is leaders in the church, which minister they follow. So it's, it's describing when there's a specific issue or a specific platform and different people take different sides and fight over that. In the 90s growing up, churches had what was called the worship wars. And that is when the kind of the old guard was fighting for hymns and organs and pianos and younger people were fighting for drums and guitars and all that stuff. And it literally, like, it literally was, this term was coined worship wars because this became so divisive that churches were splitting over the issue of music. This has been an issue in Corinth for a while. Actually, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, from the get-go, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for 11, some of Chloe's people have told me, not you, some of Chloe's people have told me that there is quarreling among you, that there is fighting among you. So this this is rung true with them of all. And, and here's kind of the thing about this. I said I want to do an inventory. Um, and this is true of all of these traits that we're about to talk about. Nobody 
Nobody reads this vice list and goes, oh yeah, it's totally me. Nobody identifies themselves as a quarrelsome person. I really like to fight. I really like to start problems. That's me. That's kind of my hobby, um, is causing turmoil. Like, nobody says that's me. But the truth is, this is in us. This is in the church, whether people see it or not. And so, question for you. Um, are you the kind of person who loves to debate things? Um, and by the way, like debate isn't even a terrible thing, actually, when the point of it is to discuss and try and work through things. Usually when people say, I really like to debate things, what they mean is I like to win. I like to win debates. Are you the kind of person who, who likes to win? Who likes to show how smart you are? This same word for quarreling, it's uh, eris in the Greek, and, and Paul talks about people quarreling, using that word over like words, like like taking minute theological things and having fights over them that make you sound spiritual and important, uh, but, but your goal isn't really to get to the truth as much as to show how smart you are and to win. Are you the kind of person who, who says, you know, I just tell it like it is. I'm just blunt. That's just kind of who I am and I deal with it. And, and the truth is you can be blunt and you can say whatever and, and it really doesn't really bother you, but you leave in your wake a trail of damaged relationships. And, and pain within the church. The second word that he uses here is jealousy. Which is not always a bad thing. This word Paul used, zealous, is it? It's that idea of being zealous for something, being passionate. And he uses this same word to describe himself in 2 Corinthians 11. So in just the chapter before, he says this, I have a divine jealousy for you. But he says, the reason I do is because I betrothed you to one husband, to Jesus. And so this is a jealousy on behalf of God that he wants them to come to him. So it's not always a bad thing. We we talk about God is jealous, but um, when it takes place in human beings who are jealous over things that they want, that's when it's a problem. I love Jim, Jim at Sunnybrook will talk about his dad. Anytime when they were kids, when Jim and his brothers and sisters were kids, and one kid got something got a cookie or got a dollar from dad or got to go do something and they would start whining about that. How come she gets to do that? Why do, and if, like, when you start to have kids, you'll know. That is like, in first and second grade, that is the primary most important thing is fairness. And that's not fair. And why did they get to do that? And, why, and, and Jim's dad used to always ask, what's wrong with your heart that you can't be happy for your sister right now? What is it in you that cannot be glad that they get something fun? Um, Jesus says the second most important commandment is this, that I love my neighbor as myself. And you know what? I, I love it when things work out for me. I love it when things go well for me. And so if I do not have the ability to love it when things go well for you, to be really happy and excited when, when blessings come on you, when things are really working out in your favor, then there's a sign that that's something wrong in my heart, that I might not be loving well. Do you, is there anybody in your life, maybe in this room, or in your church, either here in Stillwater or back home, is there anybody in your community that you find yourself being bitter towards? And the truth is, you can't really think of much that that person has ever done to you. It's just that that person like, seems to, to have the things you want. Like They seem to be successful in the things you wish you could be successful for. For whatever reason, that boy likes them and not you. 
or, or they got asked to be a leader at the table or in some other capacity or ministry and you didn't and you just find, find something in your heart against them, if so, watch yourself. Be careful for what that might do to your heart and what that might do to the church. The next one he mentions here is anger in the ESV. But it's really a stronger word for this, this thumos. This is the same word in Luke 4 when it says that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth and they got really angry at him about some of the stuff they said. It said that they had this thumos for him and then they tried to throw him off a cliff, okay? So it's a little bit more than like perturbed, right? Um, It actually gets translated fits of rage in other translations. It is a rage. And again, this is actually a word that is not all bad. This word in Romans 1 describes God. This word in Revelation 14 also describes God, His wrath poured out on sinful humanity, on a sinful world. And so, not always bad when God has that, but when people have wrath, and when they have fits of rage, that's not something that is healthy or good. How quick is your fuse? Or how, how easily offended are you? There are a lot of people who don't have a big temper, who don't like lose their cool and say things they don't mean, but they're quick to feel slighted. They struggle to give others the benefit of the doubt when they say something. I think that that was meant as a comment towards me. And they get easily offended and easily hurt. Uh, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the characteristics of love is that it is not easily angered. It doesn't get mad quick. It doesn't feel slighted really fast, is able to give people the benefit of the doubt. Let me, let me take this one step further. How well do you do in this area with those who are closest to you? Like you're, you're not just your Christian brother or sister, your actual brother or sister. Your, your mom and dad, for me, my kids, I'm super chill until I walk into my own house. <laughs> super chill until my kids break out in fights and somebody spills something and somebody else breaks something all in three seconds. Um, and, and so that's, that's a place where God reveals to me in the relationships that I'm closest with. Um, here's the next one that gets thrown out, hostility. And of all the words, this one might be kind of the worst. Uh, sorry, I can't talk and spell sometimes at the same time. This is probably the, the least accurate translation of all of them. It's a word that is almost never used outside of the New Testament. And so we can't like look at how it's used in other Greek very often to kind of say, oh, this is what it must mean. Aristotle actually uses this word. He uses it to describe someone who, is, um, who has a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Someone who's trying to build their power by like unfair means. Um, it's probably better translated the way that we translate it in Philippians 2.3. Um, Paul says in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from, does anybody know? Selfish ambition. That's this word. Do nothing from erethei, from selfish ambition. Um, For adults in the church, this plays out often in like power or authority grabbing. Um, Students, not so much a lot of times. For your age and stage of life, I think this plays out more in not wanting to have power and authority, wanting to be seen and known. Wanting to be seen as important, wanting to be um, respected, wanting to be looked up to, to kind of stand out. And it's interesting that Paul 
will then go on to contrast from Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but instead have the mindset of Jesus, who really was important and made himself nothing. Next, I'm going to put these two together. Slander and gossip. The first of these is a more public expression. So to slander somebody publicly, we talk about politicians slandering one another because they'll like make a commercial and go public with the statement that they make about somebody or say it from the stage. Um, the second one has a note of secrecy to it. This word sometimes gets translated as whisper because it's something that you're saying behind somebody's back or whispering into somebody's ear. And in some ways, I think this one, gossip, might be perhaps the most dangerous of this whole list because it is the easiest to do and because, listen to this, because gossip does so much for me personally and it feels like such an insignificant thing. It feels it is so high reward and so low risk, so low cost. This is Ray Ortland says this about gossip and I think it's really important to hear. Gossip makes us feel important and needed as we declare our judgments. It makes us feel included to know the inside scoop. Gossip makes us feel powerful to cut someone else down to size, especially someone we are jealous of. And it makes us feel righteous, even responsible to pronounce someone else guilty. Is any of that you? You find it easy when you're with your friends to talk about your other friends or to talk about those people who aren't your friends. Um, and, and do you get a little bit of a high from that? Do you get a little bit of encouragement from it? I say that gossip is, seems low risk, high reward, but the truth is it is high risk. And gossip does incredible things to damage community in the church. It is this one, conceit. This is a word that actually appears nowhere except for, in all Greek literature, we do not have this word except for in this text right here. It was the only place that it ever, and so it's really kind of a tough one to translate. More literally, it's probably swollen-headedness, okay? Puffed up. Uh, it's, it's this idea of having like a big head or whatever, and so... Um, Paul will say in another place in Romans 12, it's important, and it's, Romans 12 is, is, kind of ends up dealing with community and how we interact with community. And one of the things he says is, a person ought not to think of themselves more highly than they ought. Um, here's a question for you. Who is the least important person in whatever room you're in? Um, biblically, the answer is you. Are you able to see that? Again, Philippians 2 have this mindset as of Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, but made himself nothing and served. And the end result of this is this last word for disorder. When all these things work together, it brings disorder or chaos into the church. And as we said, this cannot be a marker of the church. Here's, here's kind of the neat thing about this text, and I don't know if Paul's doing this on purpose or not. It wouldn't surprise me if he was, but it's just kind of smooth enough that it really may not be. It may just be happening. Is that 
in the middle of this text where Paul is declaring all these, all these kind of signs of disunity, Paul is actually um, modeling the example of what they ought to be instead. So instead of this, Paul, Paul is showing them a kind of life that is everything opposite of this. He says in verse 14, I seek not what is yours, but you. I don't want anything from you. I'm not trying to gain anything from you. There is no selfish ambition in that. Okay, There is no conceit. I'm not trying to get anything. All I want is your hearts for Jesus. That's all I want from you. He says in verse 15, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Does that sound like you? I will gladly spend myself on behalf of my brothers and sisters. I will wear myself out for you. You see how that works completely opposite with jealousy and quarreling with conceit. He says in verse 19, you may think that this whole thing has been just to defend myself, but I'm telling you the truth. All of this is for your upbuilding, for building you up, for edifying you. Even if it might sound, and this is what it's going to get into next week, even if it might sound like I'm beating you up, I promise you I'm building you up. Building up feels like beating up sometimes. When we're living in sin and our brothers and sisters are building us up, it sometimes feels like it. But God's, Paul says, I am trying to build you up. Paul is setting for them an example of how they ought to be living. And he gets that example, not first and foremost from himself, but as we've been referencing from Jesus. Mark 10, 45 um, says this, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus says, and that is how you ought to live. And Philippians 2, that Jesus lowers himself and lowers himself. And Jesus sets this model for how we ought to live the way we, if you identify with any of these things, if you can feel one of these things or multiple of these things might take you away, the solution the cure for those things is to take on this idea of Jesus, to take on the mindset of Christ that chooses to serve rather than lift myself up over those things, over other people. So I mentioned